it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, why should Christians care about Israel's deliverance from slavery? Coming up in this episode... Think of the drama in this event. It's thousands of years ago and a nation of millions walk away, literally walk away from generations of slavery all in one day. How did that happen? What if their miraculous God-driven deliverance was describing something even more spectacular? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for more than 20 years. It's always a blessing. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Fascinating topic today, gentlemen. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Exodus 12, 50 and 51. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. In all of human history, there's never been an event with the magnitude and drama of the nation of Israel being freed from their harsh slavery in Egypt. Millions of people and countless flocks literally walked away from generations of harsh servitude. God guided them to their freedom after the 10th plague and through the establishment of the Passover. This Passover event was to be remembered and celebrated year after year for all their generations to follow. And the whole deliverance from Egypt experience was mentioned countless times throughout the history of the Old Testament. Why? Why were these things such vital things to not only remember, but to appreciate? Well, it turns out that these things provide massive insights for Christians as to how God's plan really works. So let's begin looking at all of this with the preparations for the Passover and Israel's deliverance. And for those who aren't familiar, Passover signifies to pass by or spare from an affliction. The angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites during the 10th and final plague of Egypt, which was the death of the firstborns. So that's what Passover means, and we're going to be using that term throughout this entire podcast. So you want to understand this passing over was this miraculous deliverance that would eventually free the nation that next day. So we're going to focus in this particular segment, this first segment, on Israel's new sacred calendar and the choosing of the Passover lamb. So Jonathan, let's get started with this Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So before Moses and Aaron even knew how their deliverance is going to work, God informs them of the generally overlooked but vital change in their calendar. Julie, give us a little background on that that vital change. Sure. I'm going to sum up what Matthew Poole, his commentary on the Holy Bible said. So the year, the normal year started with the month called Tishri near the autumn equinox. So that's around our September. And this would remain for their civil calendar. But there would be a change in their sacred calendar for religious rites. Now the first month of the Hebrew year would be called the month of Abib. And it was later called Nisan. This corresponds roughly to our March, April, and the spring equinox. This was a dramatic way to say everything was changing. Yes. And so what God had begun doing before they even understood it, he was instituting spiritual connections with Israel by saying, this will be the first month for you. Deliverance would mean a new beginning. So as God delivered Israel, he created a sacred calendar along with their civil calendar, which which like Julie said, operated six months differently as a way to spiritually draw the nation to him. So once God instructed this sacred calendar uh, was beginning that very month, he put the first and most important events on the calendar. So Julie, when you think about that, he put the first and most important events on the calendar. What were those events that he would have put onto this calendar? So important. Well, I- 
I believe it's them getting ready to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. This would involve specific steps. It would start with preparing the Passover lamb that they'd eat on the night before they left Egypt. So this sacred calendar was being prepared with their deliverance. And it is the most important thing. Jonathan, let's go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So on the tenth of this month, take a lamb for themselves, according to their households. This is the first part, the first instruction that happens. This text introduces the lamb, and this lamb would bring their deliverance and the critical timing associated with the bringing of the deliverance from this lamb. Those two things are the first things mentioned for this calendar. So far, we've got a sacred calendar, an important date, and a lamb. What's next? And there's a lot to be added to that. As important as these things were to Israel's deliverance, and this deliverance, again, was the most spectacular deliverance in history, these things foreshadowed the greatest deliverance the world would ever see for all time. So as great as the deliverance was that Israel experienced coming out of Egypt, it foreshadowed, it explained something so much bigger, it's, it's hard to even get your arms around. This next scripture plainly shows us that there's so much more to learn here. So Jonathan, we're talking about Israel and the Passover, but let's jump to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Some people might miss this bridge between the Old and New Testaments. Jonathan, you read, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Here's a clue to tell us to look closer into the Jewish Passover because Israel's Passover lamb represented Jesus and the killing of the lamb pictured his death. And Paul is giving us a very meaningful explanation of the symbolism that God intended with the Passover. Leaven or yeast is pictured as sin. He calls it malice and wickedness. He is saying the only way to appreciate Jesus as our Savior is to approach with a pure and sincere heart. And just a little bit of sin permeates our whole being. Observant Jews to this day extensively clean their homes to make sure every tiny crumb of leavened bread is removed. Some even keep separate cooking utensils and pots that they use only for the days of Passover just to make sure there won't be any leaven anywhere in their home. You know, and I appreciate the diligence in that because when you're supposed to clean out the old leaven, leaven is representative of sin. And you just don't want it around. And especially in this example, as you will see, it was critically important to not have any leaven around. And so the bottom line here from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is, Jesus is our Passover. That's what he says. Our Passover has been sacrificed. Just as Israel would find deliverance because the lamb was sacrificed, so we find deliverance because Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. As we follow what happened to Jesus on the very same days that were important to, in Exodus, let's start with the ninth of Nisan. Jesus was with his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha the day before entering Jerusalem when anointed by Mary to prepare for his death. So, Jonathan, that account is found in John chapter 12. And, and folks, we're going to find that John chapter 12 is a very important chapter to help us understand all of this. So if you're following along with your Bible, Exodus chapter 12, John chapter 12, two very important chapters that we're working on. John chapter 12, Jonathan, let's start with verses 1 to 3. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We learned so much about these two women, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, in episode 1049 called, Are You a Mary or a Martha? And this episode is definitely worth listening to in order to have a solid background on what happened here. Search 1049 at ChristianQuestions.com or on the Christian Questions app. 
So Mary anoints Jesus, and Judas is there, the, the apostles are all there, and Judas complains. He complains about the cost of giving this honor uh, to, to Jesus. He's complaining, and here's how Jesus responds. Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, sacredness is instituted before the actual event. Jesus is put into the sacred calendar, if you will, through this anointing. Six days before he is to die, he was anointed for burial. So we have the sacredness of Jesus' life put into place for his burial. Look, the rest of his life was sacred, there's no question, but it, it was the preparation for his burial. He's the Passover lamb, the preparation for this event that changes the world. Now, this would have been on the 9th of Nisan, a day before the events that the Passover would focus on. Jesus had been prepared with this anointing to be the lamb. This preparation was getting him ready to have his life come to an end. Jonathan, let's go back to John chapter 12. Now let's go to verses 9 to 11. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. <laughs> That's amazing when you think about it. So there's several points of interest in these verses in John chapter 12. Julie, let's get started. What are they? Lazarus was a spectacle to the public. There's no doubt that he really had been dead for four days, and Jesus brought him back to life. The next point, the chief priests and Pharisees were waiting for Jesus, and now Lazarus as well. A chapter earlier in John 11:53 says, they planned together to kill him. Word traveled through the multitudes and they also waited for Jesus. Imagine a day when you could bring hundreds of thousands of people together without any social media. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Jesus entered Jerusalem and the hearts of the people on the 10th of Nisan. So we see the preparations before the any date is put in place. Remember, the 10th of Nisan was put in place um, for Israel specifically. And that was the first true event of the sacred calendar. And we see Jesus in his life being prepared for that 10th of Nisan as well. So as we wrap up this segment, we want to connect the Passover lamb and the lamb of God who is Jesus. So Julie, first, summing up the Passover lamb. The choosing of the lamb for the Passover was the first event of the first month of the new sacred Jewish calendar. Okay, now hold that thought. Jonathan, what about the Lamb of God? Jesus was anointed as preparation for the same first event of being the Lamb chosen by the people. This Lamb would become a sacrifice that would redeem the world. So you've got the two things working together, and this is just the beginning of those connections. So Jesus' sacrifice was pictured by the Lamb of the Passover. While this is relatively easy to see, <laughs> just wait for the rest. Israel brought each Passover lamb into each house on the 10th of Nisan. How did Jesus fulfill this event? This bringing of each lamb into each house was a significant gesture and showed a full acceptance of the lamb by the family. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was constantly met with strife and contradiction. That is, until the 10th day of Nisan, when the most dramatic public event up to this point of his life was to occur. So now, in this segment, what we want to do is go a little bit further, and we're going to focus on the value of the Passover lamb and the events of the 10th of Nisan. So we're going to focus in a little bit more on the, on the lamb and the specific day and then relate it to Jesus. So let's get back to the Passover lamb and the 10th of Nisus. First, 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 some more groundwork. As God continued with his instructions regarding the Passover lamb. A little bit more detail, Jonathan, Exodus chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, several points here, Julie. Go ahead. 
So I see three points. The first is that the lamb was to be completely consumed during the Passover meal, and it was just the right size to feed everyone the right portion so that all would be satisfied. The second point I see here is that the lamb was to be unblemished. It had to be male and a year old. And the third point I see is it had to be eaten with your own household or that of your neighbor if you needed, uh, if you, you know, based on the size of the lamb. So this is an intimate meal. It's eaten in haste. There's no time for a party or to invite your best friends who live farther away. It was you and your neighbor. And that, that's an important aspect. So you've got the complete consumption, the unblemished male a year old, and then it's, it's with those who are right around you. So now think about that in terms of the Passover lamb and the, the, the release from slavery of, of, the, uh, of Israel back then. And now let's think about how this next scripture we're going to read, New Testament, how these physical Passover lamb qualifications work on a spiritual level in relation to Jesus. So Jonathan, let's go to 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So it's focusing on the blood of Christ. And, 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 and Peter starts out by saying, look, you weren't redeemed with silver or gold. The word for redeemed you, means you weren't released uh, upon the receipt of a ransom payment. You know that what happens if somebody is held ransom, an appropriate payment for their value is given. And so what Peter is saying is the appropriate payment for the value of humanity wasn't the greatest amount of silver or gold that anybody could amass in, in, in the entire history of the world. It was the blood of Christ. That was the appropriate payment. And there's a lot of detail here. We're going to come back around to some of that in a little bit. But Jonathan, first, let's look at some points of interest here in relation to the points of interest Julie talked about from Exodus 12, 4 and 5. Well, our first point, as each individual partook of the lamb to their fill, so Jesus provided the full redeeming price for the freedom of all humanity. The second point, as the lamb was in perfect condition in the prime of life, so Jesus's life and blood had unblemished and precious value. Both were sac sacrificed in the prime of his life. So we've got those two points that, that Peter is really, really showing us. And remember, one of the things Julie said was the lamb was for your own household and your closest neighbor. When we say closest neighbor, we mean closest in proximity. And the third point brings us to Matthew twenty two thirty nine. Jesus told us the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can look at that very, very literally here. Maybe you didn't get along with your, your, your closest neighbor, but in this case, you were to get together so the lamb could be fully consumed. It's an important lesson, and the, the sacrifice of Jesus brings that lesson into play. So, now we consider the significance of taking the lamb into their homes on the 10th of Nisan in relation to the life of Jesus. We left off with Jesus at the home of Lazarus six days before the Passover. So we're going back to John chapter 12, and Jonathan, let's go to verses 12 to 15. On the next day, on the 10th of Nisan, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And you think about this, and this is a short rendition of the experience of riding into Jerusalem. There, there are several other Gospels that cover it, and actually in, a, in the bonus material of the show notes, you're going to see those all put together. But there's a dramatic thing happening here. The people are flocking in, and they're taking branches of, of trees, and they're laying the branches in front of him, and they're throwing their cloaks before him, and they're shouting out at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, the Son of David. I mean... There is this incredible embracing going on here. So why all of this dramatic activity? Julie, there's a few side points here. Let's take a look. 
we looked at Matthew Poole's Bible commentary, and he said this, their laying the garments upon the donkey and throwing them in the way was a custom they used toward princes, as appears not only by many records of secular non-religious authors, but from 2 Kings 9.13, where the like was done to Jehu upon his being anointed king over Israel. For the acclamations, they were also such as were usual to princes. Okay, so you have this princely, kingly welcoming of Jesus into the city. And, you know, it talks about this very great multitude, unified behind Jesus, the son of David. Julia, how about a little bit of detail on that multitude? In John Trapp's complete Bible commentary on this verse, it says, uh, and the very great uh, of the very great multitude, Bondinius saith, he was met at this time by three hundred thousand Jews. Some whereof went before Christ, some followed after, according to the solemn rites and reverence used to be given to earthly kings in their most pompous triumphs. This was a big deal. Three hundred thousand people. Just let 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 that sit in, sink in for a moment. Where do we see events that have three? hundred thousand people you know you can go to a a a full stadium for a a baseball game or a soccer game or a football game and you can have 50 or 60 or 70 thousand people in that stadium and it's it's an amazing thing you know my my daughters and i have gone to yankee stadium new york yankees fan got to admit it (laughs) and uh many many times in past years and when you go and it's a full stadium there's a there's an electricity throughout the place and especially when people get excited about something i mean you feel the vibration of the people around you and it's just and and that stadium seats seats fifty thousand people this is six times bigger think about that there's all of these people with the shouting and it's just this incredible acclamation toward jesus so well excitement in one area rick but let's think how the pharisees felt they were fearful and losing control of the people. If Israel proclaimed Jesus as king, they would lose their position of authority. In John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to one another, the world has gone after him. Mm-hmm. So thanks for bursting my bubble. Yeah, that was a really good point, though. Yeah, not everybody is feeling the electricity. Well, and, and actually, the, the problem is they did feel the electricity, and they said, we're doomed. The world has gone Uh-oh. after him. And their response to that wasn't to say he's something special. It was to say he's somebody to be rid of. And that's the tragedy of their, their misconceptions and, 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 and conclusions about Jesus and his miracles and his teachings and the fact that he's the son of God. So you do have that incredible joyous acclamation and that subset of anger and frustration. It really is a dramatic contrast. Now, remember, he was with Lazarus before all of this started. So let's focus a little bit more on Lazarus. When Jesus, and remember, Lazarus is the man that he raised from the dead, Julie, you mentioned he had been in the grave four days. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, so we're going back in time a little bit, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. Here's what he said in John 11, 4. He said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So we think about that, and we think of that in the big picture. Well, because Jesus would be glorified by that eventually. But let's reason through this a little bit. Jesus knew that raising Lazarus would create massive excitement among the people and, Jonathan, like you said, outrage among the leaders. He was with Lazarus for the ninth of Nisan, and word spread about both he and Lazarus. So Jesus' actions... And his location drew people to him and Lazarus because people wanted to seek the two of them out. And so that was back in John, John chapter 12, 9 through 11. We read that in the last segment. The point here is that God was glorified in all of this. And the interesting thing is in this scripture where it says that the Son of Man may be, may be glorified, the word means to be esteemed glorious. And for that day... For those hours, Jesus was esteemed glorious, only to have many turn on him and yell, crucify him days later. But you can see there's a subtle fulfillment of what Jesus knew would happen by the raising of Lazarus as he spoke about it, and he knew that he would be esteemed glorious and then be crucified to be glorified for all of eternity. So, 
Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, embraced and heralded by the massive crowds. So here's the question. Why do you enter Jerusalem this way? Well, Rick, prophecy had arranged it that way. Okay, and we know that because Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 11, is a very specific prophecy about this happening. So, Jonathan, let's go at this one verse at a time. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, this is an unmistakably clear, clear prophecy of the main event of that 10th of Nisan. Absolutely. Okay, Jonathan, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's a lot happening in this 10th verse, from the cutting off of, of, of the ability to fight to his dominion being from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So verse 10 is kind of like a microcosm of the consequences of Messiah's rejection by the people mixed with the broad spectacle of his all-encompassing dominion that would eventually come. And then verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And this is a continuation of the dominion of Jesus. These, this releasing the prisoners from the waterless pit, without getting into too much detail, is talking about releasing Israel from the disfavor, from the rejection that Jesus proclaimed upon them, your house is left to you desolate. So this prophecy in Zechariah is showing us Jesus riding into Jerusalem and showing us all of the other things that this would trigger and this would bring. So it's a dramatic prophecy that gives us a very, very, very big picture. And here's an important point. Through Though his triumphant entry into Jerusalem was prophesied about 500 years earlier here in Zechariah, this event happened spontaneously because of the person Jesus was. You know, unless he sent out invitations to the 300,000 gathered, this couldn't have been staged. He didn't force this prophecy to come true. And we have a great earlier episode, number 817, called Did Jesus Live According to a Script? It's one of my favorites because there are so many prophecies about Jesus that came true that would be impossible to arrange and impossible to have and then write, it, write about it, you know, be, beforehand. Um, there's just no doubt that he is the Messiah. And this is, like you said, we're just touching the, the tip of the iceberg to show that. But it's dramatic, and it's inspiring, and it's fulfilling, and it's on the 10th of Nisan. So let's keep it all in order. So, so let's connect again, the Passover lamb and the lamb of God. So Julie, what about the Passover lamb? The chosen Passover lambs literally lived at the homes of the people, thus forming a special kind of attachment to the animal. Each lamb provided a completely sufficient meal for all, and it was the best of the flock, and it was the key to that household's deliverance. All right, so that's what happened with the Passover lamb brought to the households on the 10th of Nisan. Jonathan, what about the Lamb of God, Jesus? On the 10th of Nisan, Jesus was overwhelmingly accepted into the hearts of the people as the Passover lamb had been accepted in the homes of the people. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, redeemed humanity by providing full satisfaction and redemption for all. So you have the lambs coming to the people. The Passover lamb comes to each household, and it's just enough of, of lamb. We'll get to that in the next segment. And Jesus is brought into the hearts of the people in a dramatic—you cannot, you cannot underestimate— the drama of his riding into Jerusalem, into the hearts of the people. It's a massive connection that most of us don't even think about. But this is why the Passover was there. This is why the Passover was so important and always so remembered. So these connections between the preparation for the original Passover and Jesus being accepted by the people, frankly, they're startling. With so much hidden meaning in just the preparation of the Passover, what can we learn from the actual event? Because it was so obvious that God used the Passover in all of its stunning detail and magnitude to point to Jesus, we need to pay attention ever closer 
to the actual sacrifice of the lamb and the deliverance. These things, the sacrifice of the lamb and the deliverance, these things will show us hidden details about how God's plan was, is, and will unfold. So folks, what we're suggesting to you is that the Passover tells the story of God's plan for mankind. It gives you this glimpse into the entire plan. So by paying close attention to the details, we can pay close attention to understanding the mind of God. That's how big the Passover is. So in this segment, we're going to focus on the power of the blood of the Lamb to save the firstborn and to deliver the people. And those are stated as two different things because they are two different things, as we will see. So Jonathan, let's go to Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse 7, and then verses 12 and 13. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if you were a Jew living as an Egyptian slave, this ritual was very meaningful. And if you were a firstborn, it was even more significant. Without the lamb's blood sprinkled on the doorposts of your house, you would die, as the Egyptians learned the hard way. Exodus 12.30 tells us, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. And, you know, sometimes people look at this and say, wow, God was cruel. Understand that there were nine plagues before this, bringing the people to this point. And Pharaoh said, no, 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 and no. And so this final plague would be the straw that breaks Pharaoh's back in in, in picture language. It would be the thing that actually allowed him to just let the people finally go. And it came down to blood. It came down to the blood of the lamb. Why blood? As soon as man sinned, the sacrifices of animals became a necessary part of sinful human life. So when we go back to the beginning, in the very first generation from Adam and Eve, we see this necessity for blood sacrifice. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? In that account, Cain's sacrifice was not a blood offering and was therefore rejected. So let's take a look scripturally at the why behind the need for blood. Jonathan, let's go to Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So, and this a, a little bit of a scientific medical fact. Life is in the blood. Israel knew that way back then. Remember later in the, it was the 17th century, 18th century, when they would do bloodletting to make people get better? What they were doing is literally draining the life out of them. Yet, in Israel, they knew that life was in the blood because God told them. Just a, just a side fact about God's, God's protection of the people. But here's the point. The only salvation available as a deliverance from slavery for Israel and as a deliverance from certain death for the firstborn, the only salvation was the blood of the Lamb. This blood was to cover them completely, as Jonathan, you read in Exodus 12, because it, 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 as it symbolized it was symbolized in the striking of it on the doorposts and the lintel of the households. And what does that mean? Well, that means the door frame, the top, and the two sides. And think how easy it is to make a cross by placing the two sides posts together and bring the top piece down two feet. So just as there was blood on the doorpost, there was the blood of Jesus on the cross. In God's eyes, the lamb took your place and the blood on your doorposts was an outward visible profession that your family was following the directions of God for deliverance. So this shows the ransom, a life for a life. This was the marker of the sacrifice of that life given up. And life is of great value in the sight of God. He knows when a sparrow falls, as we see in Matthew 10, 29. 
And in 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So the sacrifice of the lamb for Israel came with a cost, a precious life. And that's the point. Why blood? Because it was important to show the justice that was needed to reconcile great sin. So let's expand this a little further. And we're going to expand it by looking at the New Testament to sum up the Old Testament. All the sacrifices, Israel, you know, when when you look at Israel in the Old Testament and you look at Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's all kinds of sacrifices for all kinds of things. All of these sacrifices, including the blood of the Passover lamb, draw us to the one true and eternal sacrifice. They were all essentially there as parts of a picture to show us something bigger. Why do we know this? Because in Hebrews chapter 10, it explains it very plainly. Hebrews 10, 1 through 7. Let's, Jonathan, let's just do verses 1 and 2 to start. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So the Passover and Israel's deliverance from slavery signaled the necessity of blood sacrifices for the entire nation. That was the first national sacrifice before God. It was this Passover lamb. And so you have this, and then you have all these other sacrifices, and in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, it says, you know, they needed to offer them over and over and over again, because it was, it was, it was essentially buying them time of, of being cleansed. So even with this magnitude of atonement, with, with all of these sacrifices, there's still a deeper meaning coming. Hebrews 10, Jonathan, now let's go verses 3 to 7. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God man, you, you look at that and you think, it, it, just, it just pours out why blood. Jesus is the final and complete fulfillment of all of these Old Testament sacrifices, because you had them all that, that bought Israel time, but Jesus actually buys back Adam's sin, and then you don't need it anymore. There's, there's drama here, and it's shown to us in the Passover lamb. That's a place where this is, this is a mosaic of beautiful artistry that shows us the life and death of Jesus. As powerful as all of this is, with the deliverance of the Passover, it gets deeper. The firstborn of Israel were subject to death and protected by, by the blood. Remember, the blood of the Lamb delivered the firstborn. As a result, the rest of the nation were also delivered. So you have the firstborn delivered first, the rest of the nation were also delivered after, and that tells us that deliverance comes in two stages. That night was special to your family because not only were the firstborn delivered, but as you said, Rick, on the very next day, the entire nation left the slavery that they had known all their lives. Deliverance was not just for the firstborn. So God gave both the firstborn and the nation of Israel a reason to remember that night and keep a perpetual memorial. So we're suggesting that the deliverance of the entire nation of Israel is symbolic of the deliverance of the entire world of mankind. And we know, we know according to scripture, that that's part of God's plan. How do we know that? Well, Jesus' sacrifice bought all of humanity, not just believers, all of humanity back from sin. Let's take a quick look at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. So then, as through one man's transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Quick translation. 
anybody who's born in sin is covered by is is born that way because of Adam and is covered by Jesus. Anyone. And you know what that means? That means everyone because anyone is everyone and that's what Romans 5 18 and 19 is telling us. John the Baptist in a very straightforward simple way had it right right from the beginning when he's announcing Jesus coming on the scene. John 1:29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't say he takes away the sin of the believers. It doesn't say he takes away the sin of his followers. It says he takes away the sin of the world. Are we going to believe John the Baptist, or are we going to try to make up a different story to suit what we think is right? You've got to believe what the Scriptures tell us in terms of the depth of of all of these things, all of these parts being put together. So um, you've got John proclaiming it. And here, here's another power, pass, powerful Passover reference that many of us miss. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly the ch and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the church of the firstborn, that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. When you think about that, the church, the followers of Jesus, of the firstborn, that directly suggests that the rest of humanity would follow in this deliverance. The firstborn of Israel pictures the faithful followers of Christ who are given a heavenly resurrection, which is the first resurrection. Since there is a first, there is a second, and the nation of Israel pictures the whole world of mankind and their future earthly resurrection. Because we know if there's a firstborn, there's, <laughs> there's got to be other children, right? Um, so the blood of the lamb delivered the natural firstborn in Egypt, and the blood of the lamb Jesus delivers the spiritual firstborn, the followers of Christ. In both cases, salvation is in two parts. The firstborn are the first to receive salvation. They're saved by blood, by the lamb taking their place in death. And then the rest of the people, the everybody else, are delivered. So the Passover explains this in tremendous detail if we just pay attention. That's the key here. That's why we're spending so much time on this. Let's pay attention to the details of what God is teaching us in the Old Testament about the New Testament, about Jesus, about his sacrifice, and about God's plan. So again, let's connect the Passover lamb and the lamb of God. Julie, let's go start with the Passover lamb. The blood of the unblemished Passover lamb provided deliverance from certain death for the firstborn in each household. This deliverance guaranteed that the entire household and therefore the entire nation would also be set free. So we've got the blood of the firstborn guaranteeing the safety of the, 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 the blood of the lamb guaranteeing the safety of the firstborn uh, for Israel and the Passover. Jonathan, what about the lamb of God? The blood of the perfect man, Jesus, delivers the church of the firstborn first. And through that deliverance, all of humanity will be granted freedom from Adamic sin. So you have the Passover lamb explaining in picture form, in a smaller context, the greatness of the work of Jesus. It's not by accident. God designed this so we could understand and appreciate the, the magnitude of his plan. God's emphasis on the power of sacrifices and blood makes so much more sense now. It all pointed to Jesus. What should be our biggest takeaways from Israel's deliverance from slavery, picturing the sacrifice of Jesus? Well, there are many lessons here, and most of them are startling in their clarity. Our biggest takeaway should be individually determined. Now, having said that, there's great assurance and hope in the fact that God, the creator of all things, had all of the details of how Jesus' sacrifice would work in place thousands of years before it actually happened. Because God knew 
God put it in place and gave us the, the, the picture so we could have the encouragement and the assurance that God is a God of order. I have a quote from David Guzik's Bible commentary. Almost one half of John's gospel is given to this last week before the death and burial of Jesus. Matthew used more than 33% of his gospel to cover that week, Mark nearly 40%, and Luke over 25% to cover seven days of Jesus's entire life. That does speak volumes because it shows us the magnitude of these events. And that's why the Passover was the first sacred event on that sacred calendar. And it was mentioned in, throughout the entire Old Testament again and again and again and again, and God delivered and God delivered and God delivered. You have it shown, showing up so much in the Old Testament, and you have it showing up so much in the New Testament. Folks, God is saying, pay attention to this. I'm showing you my plan. So in this segment, we're going to focus on the total consuming of the lamb and the role of the firstborn as those who are first delivered. So Jonathan, let's go to Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses 8 and 10. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. They had to eat unleavened bread because there's no time to let the yeast rise. De- Deuteronomy 16.3 calls this the bread of affliction. Remember we talked earlier about leaven being a picture of sin, Bitter herbs were eaten with the lamb, and this was a symbol to remind them of the bitter experiences they had to endure as slaves. So there's more. (laughs) There's more detail and more for us to learn from. So let's look at the sacrifice of Jesus in light of what, Julie, what you just said and Jonathan, the scripture you just read, of this description of being totally consumed along with unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. So he's, he's heard, I'm, I'm sorry, Julie, go ahead. Well, here's the unleavened bread. There's no sin in him. Remember we said the leaven represents sin. Yes. So you have to have that sinlessness here, and he was entirely dedicated to the will of his father. Next verse. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The bitter experiences of suffering was represented in the bitter herbs back in the original Passover. Okay, and verse 9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That being made perfect here means made complete. And we know that because he was already a perfect man, so he couldn't be made more perfect. And so when you you see these connections, you see the learning obedience for the things that he suffered, and you you see the bitterness, like you said, in those experiences, the having been made complete... And, and being heard because of his piety. It shows us the sinlessness of Jesus. It shows us his development in a perfect way to become the mature Lamb of God. You know, the Lamb was a year old that was sacrificed, and Jesus was a man of full age, 30 years old when he began on this journey. And it's no accident. You had to have the maturity of the perfection. It's one thing to be perfect. It's another thing to be mature in that perfection, and to be able to fulfill what was what was it was going to cost. Because in this scripture, it talks about loud cries and tears, plus reverent submission, plus learned obedience. What are they all equal? The source of eternal salvation. Jesus was fully consumed over his three-and-a-half-year ministry and poured his heart out for all people. He gave and gave up to the end when he died on the cross. And again, the Passover lamb shows us you give the ultimate gift of your life for the sake of release of others. Another Passover detail. So we're going we're gonna to pause there on that and, and move to another Passover detail that was clearly fulfilled in Jesus' own death. This is just a, a fascinating sidelight. Julie, you've been, you've been representing the Passover lamb. So read for us Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. 
They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all the statute of the Passover, shall they observe it. So you see that there was a total consuming of the lamb. That's why you had to gather people together if there weren't enough in one household. And it says very specifically, they won't, you are not to break any bones of that animal. And you say, okay, that's an odd thing to say. Well, let's look at John chapter 19, verses 32 and 33, Jonathan, the Lamb of God. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So So, no broken bones like the lamb. Only God could supply all these details. If we're not overwhelmed with reverence and awe, then we're missing something. Yeah, and you're right. There's so much detail, and it fits so incredibly precisely together. We have to look at this and say, God had a plan right from the beginning, and he's showing us how it would unfold, and he gives us this appreciation for the depth of the wisdom of God and the depth of the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was complete. There's no other sacrifice for deliverance needed Ever. So let's think about that for a second because we celebrate this memorial. We go back and because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We look at it as a picture of his offering of his body. Anytime we decide as human beings, whatever level we may be on, that we're going to make Jesus' sacrifice happen again and again and again, we have undone the value of the original sacrifice. Folks, let's be careful. Let's understand once for all, the blood was shed, the price was paid, it is finished. It is done. Let's move on. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of men and beasts. It belongs to me. These firstborn who were saved were sanctified. That means set apart for a holy purpose. They would go on to be represented in the priestly tribe of Levi. Remember, Israel was divided into 12 tribes. A quick excerpt from Numbers 3, 11, 13 says, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, for all the firstborn are mine. They were sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose just like the followers of Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we've got the picture of the firstborn, and we've got the sense of the firstborn being the true followers of Jesus, and through their deliverance comes the deliverance of the nation, through the deliverance of true Christianity comes the deliverance of the rest of the world. That's what the scriptures tell us. So here's the thing, folks. If we are Christians, if we are truly seeking Christ as that firstborn class, we must live under the blood. We must live under the protectiveness and deliverance of that blood. How do we do that? We're going to the book of Hebrews a lot because Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. And Hebrews was written because it was to show them how all of the old laws were leading them to Christ. And it does a magnificent job in bringing us there. So Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So here you've got, you, you enter the holy place, uh, and, and it's referring to the tabernacle. You, you enter this holy place by the blood of Jesus, and, and going through that veil is, is passing through, essentially through his flesh, the value of his offering of his life every day for us, and the shedding of his blood to seal that covenant. And it says, he is our great high priest. This is how you live under the blood. You appreciate and live in accordance with what Jesus said, what Jesus did. You follow in his footsteps. Now look, we're not perfect. So when we sin, we have an advocate who will stand by us before God, 
and you know who it is. It's Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In case it's not clear by this point, the faithful followers of Christ are considered the firstborn. They're treated differently and have Jesus as their advocate sitting by their side. Now, to the rest of the world, Jesus is described as a mediator in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, sitting between them and God. So there is a difference. Why? Because there was a difference in the Passover. The firstborn were delivered through because of the blood. The nation was delivered because the firstborn were delivered because of the blood. It all comes down to the sacrifice of the lamb. Behold the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. Being the church of the firstborn means we are given many different roles to fill in serving God through Christ, each other, and the world as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 shows us... Uh, uh, a wide variety of the kinds of things that are, we're called upon to do and to be. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The death and resurrection of Jesus means more to this world than most people realize because it will affect everyone who has ever lived. And when you think about the first Peter scripture, it talks about the true followers of Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Uh, and you, you, you were scattered before because many of us were Gentiles, and now you're the people of God. You have the responsibilities. You know, if you are a royal priesthood, that means you serve somebody. And that's what the Ministry of Reconciliation is going to be for. So, folks, all of this comes back to understanding why the Passover, why Jesus, why the blood, why a lamb, why the doorpost, why all of these things did they have to happen that way? Because they were showing us Jesus, plain and simple. They were parts of the greatest release from slavery that the world had ever seen, and at the same time, they were showing us the greatest release from slavery, the slavery of sin and death that the world will ever see. So let's sum up some of the dramatic Passover lamb and Jesus comparisons. Uh, uh, Julie, let's start with, uh, with uh, the Passover. Israel was given a sacred calendar to mark their deliverance. And what about Jesus? Jesus was anointed six days before his death to mark his readiness to deliver. Okay, you see the connection there. Back to the Passover. The Passover lamb was unblemished and in the prime of life. And what about the lamb of God? Jesus was a perfect man in the prime of life. Pretty clear comparison. Back to the Passover. The Passover lamb was taken in on the 10th of Nisan. And the lamb of God? Jesus was received as king on the 10th of Nisan. Passover. Passover lamb was slain on the 14th of Nisan. And the lamb of God? Jesus was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. It gets, it's, it's incredible how closely these things work together. Back to the Passover. The Passover lamb was slain. It's called at even, which means the late afternoon. And what about the lamb of God? Jesus died at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. It was the same time of day. No accident, God's overruling in this, God's picture in this. Back to the Passover. The blood of the lamb delivered the firstborn. And the lamb of God? Jesus' blood first applied to his true disciples. And lastly, back to the Passover one more time. Israel was delivered from slavery the next day. And the lamb of God? The world will soon be delivered from sin at resurrection. You see the connections. They're all there. They're clear. They're focused. It's God's will being described long before he actually puts it in place. It's an amazing thing. So let's finish this up. Folks, let's look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. 
and just soak in the depth of the pain and suffering that Jesus went through to be that Passover lamb. Go ahead, Jonathan. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. That's our Lord. That's the Lamb of God. Last time, connecting the Passover Lamb and the Lamb of God. Julie, the Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb was fully consumed, and the firstborn that it delivered would become sanctified, set apart for God's purposes as a result. And the Lamb of God? Jesus emptied himself in the sacrificing of his life for humanity. The church of the firstborn are set apart for God's holy purposes, both now and in their heavenly resurrection. So folks, as we wrap this up, what we see is a dramatic lesson that shows us the life and death and resurrection of Jesus thousands of years before it happened. God put it in place so we can understand. You know, Revelation 5.12 says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb of God. It was shown to us in the Passover. Let's take what we've learned there and go to the throne of grace with great appreciation and praise because the timing was precise, the events were precise, the meanings were precise, and the conclusion that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is precise. Praise God. Thank our Lord Jesus. The world is saved. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, can Jesus' resurrection revive my faltering faith? Can Jesus' resurrection revive my faltering faith? Talk to you next week. <laughs>